This is the Shift Podcast. This is Martin Strong filling in for Shane today on the Shift Daily Podcast. It's Weird Science with Andrew C. Ferreira, and he takes us through some massive discoveries made in space this week. We look at a massive burst of gamma rays, a gargantuan black hole, and the one thing in space that Andrew loses sleep over. We get a summary of Chinese election interference with Jonathan Berkshire Miller, director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He helps us make sense of the allegations against MP Han Dong, public inquiries, and more. Are you okay with sister cities? How about Monopoly? All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Martin. How are you? I'm doing doing very well. And uh, earlier I was talking with Ben about uh, the gamma ray thing, about the gamma rays. And I mentioned the people with the uh, pocket protectors. And we got a text from someone because I and I don't know if you find that insulting that, you know, people who, who deal in science are are always wearing those pocket protectors. It's kind of a nerdlinger kind of thing. No, we're we're, we're all gigantic nerds. Yeah. Um, and, and anyone and any one of us who takes offense at that look in the mirror yeah and somebody texted us and said uh, maybe the pocket protector is what saves us from gamma rays so there you go wishful thinking yeah wishful thinking but yes (laughs) if it was made of lead maybe yeah perhaps and it was huge uh but let's talk gamma rays now i i don't understand this at all but i heard that some people are saying that this could be the brightest gamma ray burst to hit the earth since human civilization began. So first of all, tell us what is a gamma ray burst? So a a gamma, and I'm going to have to take everybody through their high school uh, science curricula again. My apologies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's always important to keep in mind when we're dealing with the idea of light or energy in space, we use the electromagnetic spectrum, right? Right. Like if you're listening to us, you know, on an AM radio, God bless you, first of all. (laughs) Um, Thank God for that. Um, but radio waves are a form of light in a certain sense. They're a form of energy and radiation, right? Radio waves are on the far end. They've got extremely long wavelengths. You know, uh, you know the, the peaks of each wave are sometimes kilometers apart, uh, if not sometimes even longer. Uh, you get visible light where the peaks of the waves are, you know, hundreds of nanometers across. We've jumped down a whole uh, bunch of rungs on the ladder here. Um, and if we go down below visible light, we reach... Um, Good old-fashioned ultraviolet. Uh, it's the stuff that gives you sunburns, right? Um, that's why you always got to layer up in your UVA, UVB when you go outside. Um, even when it's not super bright out, just do it. 30 mm-hmm. SPF. I'm preaching to the choir because I don't actually do that, but I also don't go outside. So that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, and then if you keep kind of stepping down the ladder in intensity, uh, in terms of stepping down in terms of size of wavelength, we eventually hit gamma rays. Uh, and gamma rays are extremely narrow. And because they're extremely narrow, they occupy or they take a lot of energy in a very short amount of space compared to, say, radio waves, right? Radio waves pass through you all the time right, right now. Okay. Does not affect you adversely in any way, shape, or form uh, because there's not a whole lot of energy. Uh, but gamma rays, uh, 
You ever watched Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries? I did. That was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, gamma rays. Not for the squeamish. Oh, so it's, it's basically radiation we're talking about. It is. All light and energy is technically radiation. It's just certain energies of radiation are more harmful to us than others. Right. And once you get into ultraviolet, ultraviolet is radiation damage, right? It is, as it comes into your skin, it is breaking DNA and causing your skin to peel. And then you rub it off and it looks like snow and you laugh and then you feel sad. Um, <laughs> right? Uh, so that out of the way. A gamma ray burst is essentially what happens when bad things happen in the universe. So this could be the result of a black uh, of a collision between two black holes. This could be the result of the collision of two neutron stars. Uh, these could be the result of collisions between a, a large star and a black hole or a neutron star. So any big things that smack into each other uh, have the potential to unleash a gamma ray burst. Uh, and gamma ray bursts are essentially these directed jet engines of gamma ray radiation uh, that kind of spew out into the cosmos. Um, and luckily on Earth, we have the delightful ozone layer. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, magnetosphere. We have a magnetic field that protects us from a lot of the super bad stuff. Um, we've got a whole lot of defense mechanisms against uh, cosmic radiation, including gamma ray bursts. So saying that we've detected potentially what they're calling the boat, you know. Yeah, what, the what boat. Do kids, kids these days call it goading and the goat greatest of all time. Uh, boat is the brightest of all time is what they're calling it. Yeah, <laughs> that's so quite, that's a nice nerd moment, <laughs> right? So they've they've called it the boat, um, and they figured it's about uh, a once in every ten thousand year event in terms of power. Um, so in terms of modern human civilization, that's essentially spot on. It's about the brightest gamma ray burst we've ever seen um, since humanity was a thing. Wow. Well, so, in a modern sense. So is there any danger to us from it, from the uh, radiation? Nope, not at this, not at the level that it was at. You have to keep in mind that, well, 10,000 years is a bit long for folks like you and me. Um, 10,000 years to the universe is, you know, the time it takes, you know, for me to uh, absolutely gorge myself on a pot of macaroni and cheese, right? It is, it is beneath the blink of an eye. Um, 10,000 years is nothing. Um so on, on universal timescales, the amount of, you know, radiation that we get here, not a whole, whole lot. It is probably essentially entirely absorbed by both our magnetic field and our ozone layer and the atmosphere itself. They all kind of disperse it and you're not going to notice anything different. Um, although I will say this because I do like to scare people a little bit sometimes. Um, gamma ray bursts in close proximity to the Earth, like we're talking in our cosmic neighborhood of, say, 100 light years. Uh, and because that's a hard number to grasp, one light year is about 10 trillion kilometers. Wow. Not that that's any easier, but no. you know, <laughs> that's in a, those are units people understand. Um, this gamma ray burst came to us uh, about a 1.9 billion light years away. So the light from this explosion has been traveling for almost 2 billion years uh, before it, you know, all those photons of light, they were enjoying their free ride through space. Uh, and then they happen to smack into a tiny little rock 1.9 billion years later, and that's us. Wow, um, that blows my mind. Well, and here's the thing. I always tell people this about astronomy. Like, when you look up in the night sky or, you know, anywhere, you're looking back in time, right? The stars that you see in the night sky are not as you see them now. They're as you see them when the light that you're looking at left them, because light is an instant, yeah. right? Light takes time to get places. So, you know, if you look at, say, 
Um, there, you know, another big news thing that's been happening recently is Trappist One. It's uh, one of the prospective solar systems out there uh, that we're looking to see if we can detect any any sense of habitability among its planets. Uh, if you were to look at Trappist One with a telescope, uh, a you would need a very big telescope, like ridiculously big. It's a small, tiny star, uh, and b it's about forty light years away. So when you look at it in the night sky tonight, you're actually seeing how it looked in 1983. Wow, that's 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 really wild. And, and we got a text from John, and he he wrote something that I was going to ask you about. Uh, didn't gamma rays create the Hulk? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Uh, again, good for him. Don't try that at home. Because <laughs> yeah, you and you don't want to become the Hulk. Hulk bad. You don't want to become the Hulk, and you don't want to encounter any of the other possible bad endings that encountering a large source of gamma ray radiation uh, would do to you. Again, if you're not squeamish, watch Chernobyl. <laughs> right, right. So uh, um, you, you were saying yeah. that it it could have been the result of black holes colliding. Correct. Yep. It could have been the result of black holes colliding. It could have been the result of something falling into a black hole. It could have been the result of two stars colliding. Uh, I'm not sure that they've actually identified the source like in an exact way. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have, uh, I haven't found anything that really confirms it yet. Uh, but it's potentially, you know, any one of these things that can create this. Because gamma ray burst, you know, imagine, you know, a flashlight beam that doesn't really get super dim for billions of light years. Like you need one heck of an explosion yeah. to make that happen. Wow. That that's wild. And and speaking of black holes, there's uh, a story about a, a new black hole that was discovered. Uh, right. But first of all, explain to me, I don't know if you can, because I don't understand the idea of what a black hole is just in a couple of sentences. What is a black hole? A black hole is essentially the closest way, the best way I can describe it in, you know, a couple of sentences um, is Einstein tells us that space and time are one thing. And that thing is essentially looks like a fabric. Right. So remember those mattress ads where they would drop a bowling ball on the mattress. Right. Um, you know, any object creates divots in the mattress or in the fabric. Uh, and a black hole is essentially a divot or a, you know, object in this fabric. Uh, where the divot that it makes is infinitely deep. Right. So <laughs> you try to, it, I know, it, it's this not is, easy in a few sentences. This Nothing isn't going to be on the test, is it? Oh, God, no. Yeah, no. Good. If I was charging, if I was charging everyone listening, you know, like college tuition levels, maybe, but nah, yeah. no, you're fair, all good. Fair enough. But, they're, uh, but they're, they've just discovered a really big one, right? Uh, they think they have. Um and this is all due to the wonderful world of computer modeling. Um, but so basically a black hole is this object usually results. Uh, it results from the death of a supermassive star. Uh, our sun will not turn into a black hole. It is not big enough. Um, it'll kind of go out as a white dwarf and then cool down over billions and billions of years. So don't worry about that. Okay. Um, but a black hole essentially is this hole essentially in space where the gravitational pull is so intense that not even light can escape it. Right. That's why it's a black hole. No light can escape. So we can't see it in that sense. Um, and what Durham University um, and they're the, the folks behind this study here um, are postulating is that they may have found a black hole with a mass of 30 billion times this, uh, that of our sun, um, which if they found this, uh, oh boy, that's a big one. Um, that would be, in fact, one of the biggest black holes we've ever discovered. 
Right. So, so what happens? Does the black hole take in uh, celestial bodies and then they just disappear? Yep. As far as we know, uh, anything that is unfortunate enough to get caught in its gravitational pull and not get ejected uh, gets eaten, for lack of a better phrase, and we do not see it again. Wow. It's just gone. Yeah, there's a lot that we don't really understand, isn't there? Yeah, it, it, black holes are, you know, one of these, and black holes and gamma ray bursts as well. These have been a relatively recent, uh, These both of these things are relatively recent in, in terms of astronomy, you know, areas of interest. Uh, we, you know, we only really postulated the idea of a black hole barely 120 years ago, right? You know, compare that to the length and depth of, you know, literature, of philosophy, uh, of other sciences. You know, these are very, very new fields. So we're, you know, every single day, essentially, we're learning all sorts of new things. Um, and one of the things that we've kind of learned to do um, with black holes, and this is actually uh, what Durham University uh, is kind of leaning on to say that we found a 30 billion mass solar black hole, 30 billion solar mass black hole, um, is they use a computer model uh, to essentially look at how, and I remember how I mentioned Einstein's idea of space being a fabric and how things dent that fabric. Right. So when we're looking at this black hole, we see space warp on the way from the black hole to us. When we look at that patch of sky, we see stars get all warped. Uh, and this is an, this is an effect called um, uh, gravitational lensing. Also, unsurprisingly, theorized by Einstein. The guy was kind of smart. <laughs> um, so we looked at this gravitational lens and we looked at how space itself was warping due to the gravitational influence of this black hole. And their computer model seems to indicate uh, that the best fit for what we're seeing in the data, the best fit for what explains the kind of shape that we're looking at uh, is a black hole of about 30 billion solar masses. So we don't actually know how big this black hole is. They're just looking at the data and taking what fits the data best based on what we know. Um, and that's science in a nutshell. You know, you have an idea, you grab some data, you make the best fit, and then you see if that actually matches with reality. And if it does, congratulations. And if it doesn't, we go back to the drawing board. Um, so it's not a, a, a confirmed discovery. Um, but this does open up an entirely, essentially, new class of black holes. Um so when we're talking about black holes, there's at the smallest end stellar mass black holes. So black holes, you know, several times the size of our sun. You know, mm -hmm. we can we can picture that, right? Uh, and then we get into massive black holes, which are you know maybe hundred times the size of the sun. Those are out there. Then we get into supermassive black hole. This is not a Muse reference, um, although <laughs> I I did like that song. Um, <laughs> we get supermassive black holes. Uh, these can be millions of times the mass of our sun. And these are the kinds of black holes that are found at the center of galaxies, right? If you think of the galaxy as a giant bathtub, the black hole is the drain. Um, and then this potentially opens up the field to ultramassive black holes, which, you know, we're now talking into the billions of solar masses. So if this is a confirmed discovery, boy, howdy, uh, are we in a weird, scary place in the universe? Yeah, it, it makes you feel very small. And I'm wondering about well, could could there be a black hole that could have some effect on Earth? If one were to get close enough, sure. Um, but we are nowhere, and I repeat, absolutely nowhere near 
any black hole or any stars that may become black holes. Um, we are very much safe from black holes. Um, but let's say, you know, the sun turned into a black hole. Uh, to put it bluntly, we would not have a good day. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't need sunscreen. No, you wouldn't. You would need like high powered radiation screen. Um, but here's the fun fact. If the sun was replaced with a black hole, the same mass as the sun, nothing would change. We would still orbit the sun as if it was there. We would just, you know, freeze and die. Wow. Interesting. So what, what keeps you up at night in terms of what's out there? What keeps me up at night? Um, I always like to think of something called the Fermi paradox. It's this question posed by mathematician Enrico Fermi, uh, F-E-R-M-I, for those who are so inclined, um, the Fermi paradox. It's the question that seeks to answer the apparent uh, mismatch in how large the universe is and how and the reason why we have not detected any life besides our own, right? So I'll run you through a few numbers here, and I understand numbers are scary. I barely passed my grade 11 math. I got 52%. So I'm, really? I'm in the same boat as all... Oh, yeah, trust me. Math numbers do not do well with my brain. Uh, I'm good at ideas, not numbers. Okay. Um, so let me run this past you. So our galaxy might have 300 billion stars, okay? Okay. 300 billion, one galaxy that's ours. Uh, our studies of the galaxy show that perhaps every planet has maybe two planets, every, sorry, every star has maybe two planets, maybe. So let's just, for simplicity's sake, say every star has two planets. So that means in our galaxy, there are now 600 billion planets. And you mean to tell me that there's life on only one? And this is one galaxy. And the universe has hundreds of billions of galaxies each with hundreds of billions of stars, which means there are hundreds of billions of billions of planets. So then the question is, if there are so many potential lottery tickets for life, why are we alone? Wow. Yeah, that's a good question. And wh why does that scare you so much? Well, that only, it, it kind of leads you to a couple of conclusions. You know, one potential conclusion is that we're the first. Okay. We're the first, you know, spark of life in the entire universe, um, at least in our local area. Uh, the second conclusion is that we're the last. Ooh. And that there is nobody else left. <laughs> and Ooh. we are the last Ooh. vestige. Ooh. The third conclusion is that we are just lucky. And perhaps this is a universe in which life cannot exist outside of this one coincidental pocket. Wow. There's another conclusion you can make, and that's, and this is my favorite one. Uh, and this is, in my opinion, the most horrifying one. Life is out there, but it's hiding. Okay. We can't find it because it doesn't want to be found for some reason. Well, yeah. I wonder, because uh, we got another text, uh, you know, it's saying a black hole could be a wormhole to another universe or somewhere elsewhere in the universe. What are, the, what are the odds of that? Uh, anywhere between zero and 100. <laughs> you know, there's no way for us to know. Uh, our understanding of physics breaks down when we try to analyze black holes. Um, every single tool that we have breaks down at what's called the event horizon, like the lip of the drain. Once you go over that lip, all of, all of everything we know breaks. Um, so, you know, if we have a volunteer who wants to try and figure that out, good luck to you. 
Um, but until we find a way to have the physics of the universe make sense in a realm of infinite gravity, infinite density, zero light speed, um, we're frankly never going to truly know what happens inside. So I guess for scientists, it requires a lot of being able to be comfortable with not understanding certain things. And yes, and it also leads to what I think is a lot of the romanticism about astronomy. It's the idea that it's this pursuit of knowledge that, and you know, you could argue all knowledge is this way. But the pursuit of knowledge in a grand sense that will never end, that will always be left to your descendants and to their descendants and to their descendants. Um, it's truly one of the grand, you know, adventures, if you will, um, in, in the entire universe, that we are lucky enough to be conscious enough to engage ourselves. Um, I'm going to borrow the words of Carl Sagan. Um, you know, we are the universe's way of knowing itself. Right. right. Okay. The stuff that the stars and planets and everything are made of, we are made of the same things. We are just them in a coincidental, you know, organization of molecules and whatever. Uh, and we happen to be conscious for a few years. Uh, so it's pretty cool that we get to try and explore everything else out there. Well, thank you, Andrew. I, uh, you always leave me with a lot to think about. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's a lot, but it's, it's fun. This is the shift podcast. Welcome back. This is Martin Strong in for Shane. And last month, liberal MP Han Dong announced that he was leaving the liberal caucus to sit as an independent MP that followed a report from global news that Dong privately advised a senior Chinese diplomat in February of 21 that Beijing should hold off freeing Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the two Canadians being held in a Chinese jail. They were later released in September. I'm sure you heard all about it. Uh, Dong denies it, but it's led to a lot of speculation about a network of at least 11 Toronto area candidates allegedly supported by the Chinese government in the 2019 election. It would amount to foreign interference in a Canadian election. So what is going on to help us with that? Jonathan Berkshire Miller, a senior fellow and director of foreign affairs with the Macdonald Laurier Institute, is with us. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks so much for having me on again. Yeah, it's 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 kind of complicated. I guess it kind of isn't. Um, I mean, it's foreign. If, if if this is true, it's foreign interference in a Canadian election, which I guess is about as serious a threat as you can think of. You know, it's an existential threat. Do you think people are taking it seriously enough? Well, I think that there has been a lot of awareness. And in order to challenge foreign interference, I think the, the largest element you need is more light, frankly. So you need more discussions like we're having today, uh, where regular Canadians can engage on the issue. I think the, the first sort of thing to, to note, I mean, obviously, we don't know uh, the specifics of or the veracity of, of the allegations that were now made against this member of parliament. Um, but is that for, foreign interference, uh, more broadly, is quite a challenge for Canada. China is only one of the actors that engages in this. Of course, there's, there's others. Um, I think the most prolific in this sense would be Russia 
Iran and and others. But I think that this is a challenge that that Canada has been facing from a range of different actors. Um, and the second thing to note, which I think is important, is that uh, we're not the only ones who face this challenge. I think uh, our friends in Australia, for example, have been facing this, and in particular, the challenge from China on foreign interference. And that has led them uh, in many ways to uh, to create new structures and new legislation uh, in order to look to find a way to mitigate that. It's not, there's no silver bullet, there's no vaccine that will, uh, you know, 100% resolve these issues. But I think that this is the, the path forward is for us to to learn what some of our partners have done, have a mature uh, discussion about um, about what will actually work rather than just sort of, you know, satisfying the wolves, so to say, uh, and, and really, you know, go go with that sort of metric is what's actually going to be the most effective to protect Canadians. Right. And when you talk about Russian interference, say, in the American election, it seemed like that that was mostly uh, infiltration of the media, uh, getting into social media, Facebook and all, all that kind of stuff and spreading uh, propaganda that way. Uh, this case in Canada with the Chinese government, the allegations anyway, seem a little more hands on. So tell me about uh, how that Chinese interference uh, allegedly uh, manifests itself. What, what is actually happening? What kind of connections are being made? Well, I think there's multiple types of interference that the Chinese may be engaged in and likely are engaged in. Uh, I think the one that's being referenced the most now and obviously is at the heart of the, the discussions right now in Parliament uh, and will keep uh, David Johnston very busy as the new sort of special rapporteur is, is focused on the election itself, uh, 2019 and 21. Um, and, uh, you know, effectively, I think this is about whether China, um, you know, through monetary ways or through other sort of deceptive and clandestine ways, uh, try to sway or to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, funnel money uh, to candidates that it thought would be preferred. And you may ask, why would China um, or any foreign actor do that? And I think the rationale would be that those candidates, at least in China's estimation, um, would take a, either a softer stance against some of the issues that China cares the most about uh, or or less a vociferous uh, position uh, on issues that, that China is concerned about. Um, so I think that this uh, it is a very critical issue. As you said, this is a little bit different than, you know, some of the interference that might happen with regards to research institutions or, or, or otherwise. Um, but this goes to the crux of obviously our democracy. And and, you know, especially with elections being so close in recent days in Canada, um, you know, these seats can be quite pivotal. Right. And and speaking of Handong uh, and one of the biggest issues, you you mentioned uh, taking a, a softer stance on certain issues uh, that the Chinese government is dealing with. One of them is their treatment, the Chinese government's treatment of the, the Uyghurs, the group of people in China, uh, a group of Muslims and uh uh, it's being called a genocide. And for people who don't know this situation, briefly tell us, because uh, I think it's something that maybe doesn't get talked about enough, the, the treatment of the Uyghur people in uh, in China. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, that, so a section in, in Western China, um, a China called Xinjiang, uh, which is largely populated by the Uyghur uh, uh, Muslim majority in that in that area of China, um, and uh, you're right. I mean, they've been persecuted, not just recently. I mean, this is something that's been happening for, for decades. Um, and I think China has sort of used the uh, framing um, that this is sort of internal counterinsurgency or counterterrorism operations. 
Um, there have been some flare-ups of violence, obviously, there uh, due to the repression um, from the central government. Um, but I think that repression has often been overblown. And what we've seen now, and um, you know, whether it's international journalists who have who've made a lot of strides here in investigative research, is that China has has taken drastic steps uh, uh, in order to what they frame as curbing this, but but in the reality is is uh, putting casting aside some of the cultural unique elements and language and linguistic elements um, within Xinjiang. And this has resulted in brutal repression. Um, we've seen, you know, basically quasi uh, concentration camps where uh, tens and th tens of thousands of, of uh, weaker citizens are are held and detained for months on end, uh, without trial, with any without any sort of charges. Um, so this is this has led, obviously, the international community to condemn a lot of these actions. We've seen uh, this, as you mentioned, in Canada, um, with the member of members of parliament uh, declaring it a genocide, um, and we've also seen uh, some of our allies, for example, uh, in the in the European Union, do the, so the same. And the interesting, uh, you know, final point on this is that China has responded, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, very vociferously um, and has responded by sanctioning many of these individuals, uh, parliamentarians, both here in Canada and in Europe, uh, basically with the, with the proviso saying that uh, you have no right to interfere in what we quote unquote is uh, Chinese inter internal affairs. Mm -hmm. And and I guess a lot of people are talking about the fact that this MP, Han Dong, uh, missed two votes in parliament regarding uh the canadian stance on the uyghur situation that was that was two that he missed right how how serious do you take that yeah and that's un unhelpful as well you know i think that he, again he wasn't the only one to miss this but again i think this sort of again leads to this element that i was mentioning to you before that china prefers whether it's overtly asking or or uh you know sort of subconsciously through some of their pressure tactics uh, ensuring that uh, that uh, some candidates that they might be uh, supporting or or uh, or putting resources towards would not vote against their interests. So we don't know enough in this situation to 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 make the accusation that that Han Dong absolutely was working uh, on behalf of the Communist Party. Um, but I think that this is again an example that's that's unsettling, um, and I think we need to learn a bit more about it. We're talking to Jonathan Berkshire Miller, a senior fellow and director of foreign affairs with the McDonald Laurier Institute about the uh, the situation and the allegations about Chinese interference with uh, the Canadian government. And there are calls for a public inquiry, and it seems pretty partisan. The liberals don't want it. Everybody else does. Um, how important is a public inquiry and what effect do you think it would have? I think a public inquiry at this point, frankly, is quite needed. Um, and again, uh, I know that it's gone down on partisan lines so far. Uh, the argument against a public inquiry before getting into why I think it's necessary um, would be that uh, because of the nature of these discussions being on national security and intelligence, um, we don't want to betray our sources and methods. So uh, a lot of the, the the real details of these discussions would have to happen in a classified setting. And I understand that. And there are bodies to do that. Um, such as a national um, security and intelligence uh, committee within parliament. Um, that's all fair and good. And I think that should happen at the same time as an inquiry. But the the, the real problem of the day here is about public trust. So uh, when you have things discussed in a classified setting and then in a classified setting, 
uh, recommendations come out. And I should note that these issues are not new in that classified setting. Um, the National Security and Intelligence uh, Committee in Parliament has has been discussing foreign interference for, for some time and made its own recommendations, which have been ignored by the government. Um, so I think that we're beyond the time where all of these decisions and all of these recommendations can happen in that setting. I think we do need uh, uh, some public awareness of this. It doesn't mean that every element, every detail um, of what happened will be will be available to the public, but I think it does demand a level of transparency uh, to restore that trust, frankly, because otherwise there's going to be always be lingering questions about uh, did we get the real story? Is, is something sort of being covered up? Um, and the way to sort of nip that in the bud is to have a have a public inquiry. So you you don't think that this is uh, going to bring down the liberal government? I think it has the again. You you never know how which angles the, these things will go. Um, you know anything is possible, and I, I think right now this is a very significant issue. You know if you would go back uh, even to the the previous elections and you would talk about um, foreign policy issues or international affairs issues. And they would be of scant interest uh, in the debates. I mean, I think maybe there was one question in one of the debates. It was on China, actually, um, uh, but it was not a deciding factor. And now we're at a point where this, inter because it gets to the heart of our democracy, it's not just a, a foreign affairs issue. Um, we're seeing that this actually could be a critical issue that could bring down the government. I, I think it it all depends on the, the, the fundamental hinge question of the day. And the special rapporteur does have this in his mandate. Uh, will be to to know what the government knew and at what times the government knew what, um, because I think that's the big question here. It's not whether China interfered or not. I mean, China interferes frequently in our democracy as it does in our allies' democracy. But I think it's the question of of you know what did our government know and uh, and 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 what sort of steps did it take after knowing what it knew. So I, I guess it's something Canadians need to kind of get used to as well. It sort of sounds like uh, from what I'm hearing is that that this kind of meddling is going to go on. Uh, we just need to manage it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the the, the great and, and unfortunate things of being an open society is I think that uh, the countries will look for those vulnerabilities, right? Um, it's much more easier in a, in a closed society that's heavily surveilled, uh, such as China, such as Russia, uh, to avoid those or to, you know, to mitigate some of those, uh, what they would term as risks of foreign interference, because they can basically do what they will. But by the fact that we do have open institutions, uh, we do have open private sector research institutions, et cetera, it provides that sort of gray zone uh, sometimes for, for foreign actors to uh, uh, to move in on. So I, I, that's why I think it's a really important discussion. It's unfortunate, obviously, a lot of the things that we're hearing now, nobody wants to hear this happening in our democracy. But I think that this is you know over overdue for us to have a mature uh, discussion on this topic. Right. And I can't let you go without getting your opinion on the whole TikTok thing, because that's kind of the, the sexiest part of this whole conversation is the, you know, the banning of TikTok amongst government employees because the app is, you know, I, I guess technically uh, in control, being controlled by the the um, the Chinese government. But how, you know, how seriously do you take the threat of TikTok? Well, I think I, I I think there is some serious security concerns with TikTok, and I think you know the importance of taking a stance against TikTok. I think um, is that it's a it's a threshold breaker for other technology. I think largely again we're opening up another discussion. We've just been talking about foreign interference, but talking about the dangers of technology. Um, it, obviously, we we looked at this with five uh, G next generation networks and Huawei, for example, which 
Um, the government made a decision not to pursue uh, Huawei and other Chinese carriers in our next generation cellular networks. I, I see TikTok less about TikTok itself um, and more about its connections to the Chinese state. And when we're talking about that, we're not just talking about those server connections, but we're talking about the type of data that TikTok can access and, and giving that data potentially. And we've seen examples of that, uh, whether it's journalists or, or elsewhere, um, to Chinese security intelligence authorities. So that's a big issue. I mean, that's a, you know, the amount of metadata um, that we may not even know that we actively give away, not even passively, that we're actively give away when we sign up for these social media platforms um, into the hands of Chinese security intelligence is not an ideal situation. So I think the big discussion that I think is important we're having now is on awareness, frankly, and then then it's up to, uh, you know, our elected officials to take positions on whether uh, whether this should be banned or not. Um, but again, I should note that we're not alone in this. The United States has had advanced discussions on this and is also, uh, you know, very seriously considering a more holistic bans of, of TikTok as well. Well, it's always great to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about because I have this conversation with lots of people and uh, uh, it's just great to, to hear your views. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Thanks so much, Martin. It's always a pleasure to chat. This is The Shift Podcast. Are you, are you, are you, okay, 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 are you okay with, okay, are you okay, let's start with this one, are you okay with sister cities, sister I, cities, yeah, I, I like it, I think it's a nice case of diplomacy, yeah, uh, you know, I remember, um, uh, he's a liberal MP now, but George Shahal, who is a Calgary city councilor, I remember I was chatting with him once and he was really excited because his daughters had just learned that Calgary was a sister city to, I believe the city that they were from in India. Jaipur? Just, yeah, it was Jaipur. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, that was really cool. And that was when I really started to be like, oh, I didn't realize just how many Pretty much every city in Canada is sister cities with uh, several major cities around the world in unexpected places, too. It's yeah, cool. especially when you're a little kid. Stuff like that is really big. Like, uh, yeah. for example, Vancouver, I think, has six or five sister cities. One of them is Yokohama, Japan. And Japan it kind of it ties you to that city when you're a little kid and you think, wow, that's interesting. I, I think it just kind of opens up the world. I think the whole concept of sister cities is really good. I know Toronto, uh, they have a partnership with Chicago, which is not that exciting. It's, yeah, it's Chicago, but also Kiev is a sister city to Toronto. Ukraine, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty cool. Um, it's it's basically a form of legal or social agreement between two different cities for the purpose of promoting cultural and commercial ties. Often because it's like, uh, oh, they both manufacture something that they, and that's often one of the reasons why the city of uh, Newark. Uh, was excited to launch its next sister city partnership, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, very cool. The only problem was uh, it was a massive scam. The city that they partnered with doesn't even exist. 
What started off as a seemingly well-intentioned partnership has turned into a giant embarrassment for the city of Newark. Earlier this year, Mayor Ross Baraka invited what he thought was the Hindu nation of Kailasa to Newark City Hall for a cultural trade agreement. But it turns out Kailasa is no nation at all. It's a fake. Very embarrassing for the city. I truly don't even have words for it. I'm really sorry for the city that they got duped in that way. Though it has a detailed website, Kailasa has no real government. It's the brainchild of Swami Nithyananda, a notorious scam artist and fugitive from India who has been on the run from rape charges since 2019. Whose job was it to do a simple Google search, right? As you said, like, no one in City Hall, not one person did a Google search. So maybe we need a transformation of City Hall because not one person said, let me go on Google and figure out this was a fake city. A few days after the papers were signed, City Council rescinded the agreement. This is an oversight. Cannot happen any longer. Wow, you had one job, City Jeez. Hall. You, you ever oh. heard of a laptop? Just Google worse. it. I can't believe they didn't Google it. <laughs> like, yeah, and Kai, like Kai Lassa, the name, that sounds like the name that I would have given to a like fictional city in a book that I wrote when I was like 10 years old. You know, it just has kind of like a hmm ring to it. And so there's just so many red flags. And the story just get, got worse and worse. Yeah. <laughs> that story was from CBS News. Uh, are you okay with Monopoly? Mm. That's, a um, that's, that's a little tough one. It's a tough one. I, uh, it's, it's a good board game. It is. Mm -hmm. And when played correctly without cheating, it's, I'm looking at you, my brother, Evan, uh, it's, <laughs> Evan. uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's just, I don't know. It goes from the sort of slow and simple, or right, yeah, I'll buy that. I'll get here. I'll get this railroad to throwing the board game pieces at each other very quickly. And it is a volatile game. And so if you're, you know, if tensions are high at home, I would never recommend playing Monopoly, honestly. Yeah. I, there was a comedian, a famous comedian who had a bit, and he, he did his impression of every ending of a Monopoly game. And it's somebody <laughs> getting idea. him go, I quit! Because <laughs> it is an it's it's an investment. I mean, pardon the pun, but it's an investment huh. to play a game of Monopoly. You've got to sit there and you got to realize you could be there for a long time. Long time. They can go crazy long. I think the record was a game lasted over thirty six hours. Oh, yeah. look at it right now. Longest. And it. it Wait, how long do you think it went for? Well, did you say thirty six hours? I'll yeah, say it's longer. It's yeah, longer than I'll say hours. like four days. Um, there is a oh my god, seventy days, seventy days, seven zero. There's a lot of there's a lot of weird records here. Longest Monopoly game in a treehouse, two hundred and eighty six hours. That sounds interesting. Longest un game underground, a hundred hours. Longest game in a bathtub, ninety nine hours. Oh. And somebody spent 36 hours playing Monopoly upside down. Wow. Well, that's impressive. Sounds like hell. Kind of pointless <laughs> and uncomfortable, but who knows? Yeah. But Monopoly, oh. I, I think Monopoly is okay. It's fun. Yep. It, 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 it's fun. It, it can be fun. It can also destroy your family. Uh, but there is one iconic Monopoly card 
that stands above the rest. Don't go by Monopoly. That game is crazy. Nobody just picks up a get-out-of-free-jail card. You know, those things cost thousands. Get-out-of-free-jail card? What the hell are you talking about? Get-out-of-jail-free. Get-out-of-free-card uh, jail. You know what I'm talking about? No. You don't? That's shoots and ladders. Okay, let's go back and try that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the almighty get-out-of-jail-free card, which is, it's become such a, you know, one of those phrases that you hear so much, you sort of forget where it's from. You got to yeah. get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, and while it works great in the game, uh, it does not uh, work in real life. Uh, police in Minnesota say that during a traffic stop, a driver surprised law enforcement by presenting a get-out-of-jail-free card <laughs> from the Monopoly board game. Uh, and the Chicago County Sheriff's Office posted on Facebook about it. Uh, they said last night a deputy did a traffic stop. The driver handed him this card along with his driver's license. Uh the uh, sheriff's office said, unfortunately, the state of Minnesota does not recognize this as a valid document. And while researching the story, Ryan found yet another case of someone presenting a Monopoly card. This happened uh, five years ago and is very similar. A Dakota County Sheriff's deputy was conducting a usual traffic stop on a vehicle registered to someone with a warrant. And when the deputy pulled the car over, he realized that the passenger also didn't have his seatbelt on, so he ran the man's information. Turns out he was wanted on a controlled substance warrant in a neighboring county. When the deputy searched the man as he was arresting him, he pulled out this get-out-of-jail-free card. Looks familiar because it's from the Monopoly game. The county posted the photo on their Facebook page, and it's given quite a few people a really good laugh. That is a perfect example of a great joke. But if you've got a warrant out for your arrest, you know, that's pushing it. It's funny, yeah. but it's not going to help. It it's might, not going to help. It might make them, you know, be a bit gentler when they put you in the back of the squad car. But if you just get pulled over, maybe for speeding a little bit or something like that, and you pull, you give them a get-out-of-jail-free card, I think that's funny enough to get the guy, to the officer, to not give you a ticket. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the case of the story that just happened, I imagine the guy gets pulled over, and he's got the card in his wallet. He's probably had it in there for years for this one situation, and he's like, oh, maybe the cop will just let me go because he thinks it's funny and then presents it. And then, no, maybe, maybe just, but still, I kind of, I respect it. And honestly, I think it'd be pretty funny to carry one of those around in your wallet. Yeah, it's a, it's a great gag. I like yeah, it. Yeah, it is. Okay, let's get into this next uh, Are You Okay uh, with zero context. Okay, the category is actor and show. So we need five consonants and a vowel. Uh, okay, um, Z. Four, Q, another Q, uh, a third Q, and the Batman symbol. Okay, no help there. Um, 15 seconds. If you want to take a shot at it, talk it out. Is it Alex Karras in Webster? I don't believe it. Oh my God, I just took a shot in the deck. Holy crap. Are you okay with Wheel of Fortune? Yep. Uh, I'm okay with listening to my mom 
watch it because every single time my mom watches Wheel of Fortune, yeah, she knows the answers before the contestants. I swear, if she ever got on the show, we would be a very rich family. Really? Yep. She's, yeah, she's got an eye for it. It's talent. But yeah. you wonder about that. You wonder if you're actually in the game, if the nerves would get to you. Because it seems easy when yeah. you're... It's like Jeopardy. It's, true. it's easy when you're watching it on TV. But That's a very good point, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've been seeing a lot of... Uh, funny sort of memes i think they're they're manipulated but they're really kind of dirty <laughs> wheel of fortune answers and stuff mm-hmm. or or there'll be like two missing and it'll be really it looks like it's very very rude uh but in a slightly uh not safe for work moment this week a contestant caused host host pat sajak to crack up when she gave a uh, somewhat risque answer to a puzzle. It's WWE week on the game show, and uh, professional wrestlers are teaming up with regular contestants to solve puzzles in pairs. But the show kind of went off the rails on Monday when wrestler Drew McIntyre and a contestant, Tracina Jones, uh, moved to solve the puzzle. Fun and game. Playing with balls? Nope, still time. Playing with... Playing with dolls. Yeah. <laughs> but what did I do? Uh, I wonder if, if they... I guess they can't plan that. <laughs> no, definitely not. No, no, there's no way. No, that's just... It's just a case of everybody's mind is dirty but yeah. not hers in that moment when she's just it's a it was a valid guess it just yeah sounded pretty funny because playing there. with balls is fine it's it's the person who thinks it's wrong that has a problem exactly because what are balls you know you know come on people <laughs> i don't know <laughs> uh and uh it, it uh clearly uh made everybody laugh so uh yeah what the heck i once again it's all our problem It's not their problem. It's our problem. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 